Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we are, uh, we're continuing our year. We're continuing our series through a year in the book of Acts. Um, uh, the series is officially called Unhindered because as we look at the book of Acts, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that is largely what the believers uh, in the early church were. They were unhindered in their faith and unhindered in their, in their desire to share the gospel with other people, share the gospel with the world. And so we'll continue through that. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1 today. We're going to be in verses 12 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, you got your app, you can go ahead and pull that out. You can follow along. We'll get to that uh, in just a second. But while you're doing that, uh, since football playoffs are kind of in, in full swing, I thought maybe I'd go a little, little sport mode uh, with our opener this morning because this is the season for football uh, and specifically sports fanatics. Uh, did anybody catch that uh, Dolphins-Chiefs game last night? You had to uh, download Peacock and uh, pay an extra $5 for the game, which I know some of you weren't too, uh, too happy about. Uh, but as I was watching it, uh, the wind chill, as Pastor Jeff said, man, it was terrible. It was a negative 20 degree wind chill last night. And man, I was watching the game and the show a Chiefs fan with his shirt off and freaking out. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, why? So irresponsible. You are going to catch a cold. Like, I just felt like I was want, needed to be his mom, you know. Um, and then they panned over. And I was like, for Chiefs fan, I'm like, all right, fine. You're from Kansas City, whatever. And they showed a Dolphins fan doing it. And I'm like, if you're from Florida, bro, you're going to die later on today, right? Um, but... Uh, but anyway, being from California, I don't, I don't understand that type of weather. I just, I don't get it. Uh, I sleep with my heater on and three blankets, and it's barely getting, gets to freezing um, in Hanford. But there's an interesting thing in sports specifically. And the thing in sports, um, it's, it's called a trifecta. And trifectas aren't talked about oftentimes, but a trifecta is when an individual, uh, a team, or an organization, they master three different skills to the point that it takes them to victory. Okay, one of the most, uh, probably a pretty popular uh, trifecta is a guy by the name of Usain Bolt. Anybody heard of Usain Bolt? You guys know that? A really fast Jamaican runner, right? Um, he, uh, he, he, in 2008, 2012, and again in 2016, three trifecta, won gold medals in the Olympics, both in the 100 meter and the 200 meter sprint. So just to give you some some optics on that, no one has ever even done that two times, much less three times. And so that's the idea of a, of a trifecta. Or maybe you 49ers fans in here. You got some 49ers fans in here? Yeah, good. Um, those were my in-laws. Um, they, uh, but, but 49ers fans, for you 49ers fans, and if you're not a 49ers fan, man, enjoy this because I'm going to. Um, but uh, the 49ers this year, they had a trifecta where they had a running back run for over 1,000 yards. They had a wide receiver receive for over 1,000 yards, and they had a tight end also receive for over 1,000 yards. So that is the idea of, of a trifecta. And these examples that I give are called that because what happens w w when trifectas occur, specifically like the 49er example, is that the team or the organization in which they occur usually become incredibly successful because of it, because of those individual efforts. Essentially, it's the sum of its parts succeed because the individual parts are excelling in such a way that failure really isn't um, an option. 
And I think you could see that the some of the parts of your 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 uh, that some of its parts idea in your places of business. You could probably see it uh, in your in your churches. You can see it in your home as well. I feel like we have a trifecta here uh, at, at FBH on our on our pastoral staff, and and not not talking about me. Uh, we got we got Pastor Jeff right, and Pastor Jeff does an incredible job. If you if you only know Pastor Jeff from me incredible life-changing announcements that he gives week to week. You're missing out on, uh, on the rest of Pastor Jeff as a well-rounded pastor, but he does a great job of connecting with people. His heart is in small groups and conversations and all of that stuff, and so largely a lot of the success that we've had of our small groups that we have at our church is because of the work that, um, that Pastor Jeff puts in. Uh, pastor Brian, Brian Guy, organizational guru, right? He's warm and studied and, and never shies away from constructive criticism. Him and his team, Sarah and Christine, they oversee more volunteers than anyone else in the entire church, and they just do a bang-up job um, at that. And then we got Brian Asbury, um, who, who we love having on staff, but he's just been gone for two weeks, so he's kind of dead to me right now. Um, just kidding. <laughs> he's, our, he's our worship pastor, and they just had a baby, for those of you who don't know. Um, but, uh, but he has largely taken our music ministry to the next level, not just with his competence, uh, competence but with his, his leadership as well. And that is even mentioning, like, our office staff and Donna, who does an incredible job, the rest of our ministry staff, our facilities team, all of whom I am so incredibly thankful for because when they are being diligent and they're being successful in the areas that they oversee, the entire church then benefits. And so that's the idea of a trifecta. And so you can even make it a little bit more personal, right? When you and your spouse and your kids are all crushing it, man, that is a trifecta. And your family feels like it's just, it, 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 is, it is doing incredible things because of the sum of its, of its parts or where you and your coworker and your boss are all crushing it and meeting all of your quotas. And I don't even know what that means, but meeting all of, all of your quotas, right? That, that is a trifecta. And so today, when we look into the book of Acts, we are going to see a trifecta going down. And because of that trifecta and God's blessing on top of it on the early, on the early church, there's going to be some incredible gospel momentum into the region in which they find themselves. And as you look at the book of Acts, man, that, that idea of gospel momentum, it, it is the story of that book. The early church is cultivating gospel momentum. They're building gospel momentum. They're maintaining gospel momentum. I frankly can't think of a better textbook or a better curriculum even that spells out God's plan for building and maintaining gospel momentum than the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, you can't you simply can't even improve upon it, which is one of the reasons that we're going through it this year. As I was praying through and trying to figure out what, what we needed to do as a church and where we needed to head and all that stuff, I just felt like this idea of evangelism and prayer was put on my heart. And so then from that point, we worked backwards and say, okay, well, what is it that we need to learn about? What do we need to teach through as a church in order to accomplish that idea of evangelism and prayer? And as you look through Scripture, man, there is not a better book that describes evangelism and prayer specifically for the corporate church than the book of Acts, um, as the book of Acts does. I heard a story once uh, about Billy Graham, and to be clear, um, if a pastor ever says, I heard a story once, that means they went to the internet and researched to find a story. Um, 
So I heard a story once about Billy Graham um, who, uh, who came to a large city, and Billy Graham, great evangelist, and he was going to hold this, this, this large evangelistic crusade is what they used to do, right? And Billy Graham has since passed away, but, but you probably remember the one in Fresno back, I think it was like in, in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. Um, but Billy Graham, he had, he had his critics. He still has his critics. And there were people who didn't like the way he did things or what he said or how he did it or whatever. And so some of the critics were saying, man, if Billy Graham comes to our city, Billy Graham, he's going to take evangelism and missions back 50 years. And so Billy Graham, he heard that criticism. And of course, he said, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take evangelism and um, discipleship or evangelism missions back 50, 50 years. He said, I actually want to take it back 2,000 years. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is largely going back to the future. Because if the church and the body of Christ is going to have a future, a First Baptist Hanford is going to be able to send like spiritual shockwaves across Kings County, it will be through the exact same methods used and the message that is proclaimed in the book of Acts. So today we're going to talk about this idea of the, the Acts trifecta. And we're going to talk about three things that the early church absolutely nailed and got right and was a prelude for God's power poured out for the early world to be, to, uh, to be able to see. And so let me simply remind you that, that immediately before this passage, okay, in verses 1 through 11, there's some, there's some stuff uh, that went down. Jesus Christ at that point, he had, he had risen from the grave, met with his disciples and said, listen, I want you to go back to, to Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the coming of the promise of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to be my witnesses. It's kind of how he wraps up uh, through, through verse 11. And then after that, Jesus, he ascends back up into heaven. And so at that point, what do the disciples do? Well, the disciples, we're going to see, they go back to that upper room. Okay. And the last thing I want to mention before, before we really get into the scripture is that we find two types of text in scripture oftentimes. One of the texts is called prescriptive. One type of text is prescriptive. The other is called descriptive. So for you note takers in there, there's a good distinction between a prescriptive and a descriptive text in the Bible. Prescriptive, we can probably understand. Prescriptive is a type of text that and you look at it and you're like, that is a command. I am supposed to do that. I have been prescribed to do that in my faith. So when we start talking about the idea of like the great commission, uh, the great commandment, that sort of things, these are things that we're supposed to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is a prescriptive text. That is something that we as the church, we as individual followers of Jesus are supposed to go do. So pretty easy to, to be able to understand. But there's another type of text, which is called a descriptive text. And descriptive text largely is just telling you what happened in the story. The book of Acts has a couple prescriptive texts, but the vast majority of the book of Acts is just Luke telling the story of the early church. And so even as we get to this passage today in verses 12 through 26, you're going to recognize that there isn't a ton of like power in this text, okay, some texts honestly feel kind of boring. I mean, I'm not talking about like Leviticus boring, but New Testament boring of like, okay, yeah, they went here and then they did that and then they did that and then they did that. 
But the thing with descriptive text is, with some of the, is even in descriptive text, there is oftentimes deep theology that we can pull from those texts. And if we apply those things to our lives, then we will have a much deeper and richer um, relationship with the Lord than we would have if we didn't do so. So descriptive texts are still incredibly important. They're in the Bible. That means they're important. Okay, but we have to recognize that this isn't telling us to do something. This is giving us an example that we are able to follow. And so that's largely what we're going to see this morning as we start here in verse 12. It says this. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. All right, let's call time out right there. So the first thing that we're going to recognize in that first section is they walked a Sabbath day's journey. Sabbath day's journey seems like it's a pretty impressive journey. It's about a mile and a half. Okay, so it was the Sabbath day's journey for them. Think about like when you're kind of tired after laying on the couch watching football all day yesterday and you're like, I should go for a walk. Yeah, that's about as far as you're willing to go, right? And so a Sabbath day's journey was about a day or a, a mile and a half um, for them. And they go back to, to the upper room. And this is most likely the same upper room, the same place where they had served and shared a meal with Jesus, the same meal that we commemorate for Communion Sunday every single, the first Sunday of every single month, probably the same same room. And in this room, they spent several days in sustained and consistent corporate prayer. They were praying together as a body of believers. All right, one of the things that you're going to find out as we walk through the book of Acts um, is that prayer is one of the key themes in this entire book. That's why it's a part, it's step one in the trifecta is the early church was incredibly good at prayer, and not just prayer like by themselves, or like, hey, can you pray for me? And you throw up a quick prayer like, God, I'm praying for them right now. And you call it good, and you wipe your hands of it. You don't think about it again, right? Not that type of prayer. They were actively getting together and petitioning the Lord for the sake of the non-believers and for the sake of clarity for what it is that they were supposed to do at that point. So they were joined together in that way. And so when the body of Christ gathered together for prayer, communally, that was a significant part of the story in Acts. And one of the things you'll definitely notice in the coming weeks is that a powerful communal prayer was always a prelude to two things. When the corporate church got together and prayed, there were two things that usually happened as they followed. There was unity among the believers, and there was victory over the obstacles that they were facing. Unity and victory. And as they were gathered together for for prayer, they're unified around the one thing that was the lowest common denominator that every every single one of them had. The one thing they all had in common. And it wasn't their socioeconomic status because some of them were rich and some of them were poor. It wasn't their standing in society because some of them were more important than others. It wasn't their gender because as we saw here, it was, it was uh, th- there were all of Jesus' disciples who were all men and then it said the women came too and, and Jesus' mom was there and then it also talks about Jesus' brothers being there as well and so it was men and women who, who were there and so what is it then that is the lowest common denominator for all of these people? The lowest thing that they had in common was a life-changing, transformational allegiance to Jesus Christ, who was buried and resurrected. That's what they all had in common. 
It's the same thing that all of us have in common if you have, if you have made a profession of faith. Is that the foundation on which they built this entire movement in the book of Acts was the unity that they had in Jesus. They couldn't advance without that unity. And by the way, I want you to notice this isn't just like a sports team unity of like go 49ers, right? This is a supernatural unity that they had. And we'll get to that in just a second. But, but this idea of prayer that fosters unity together. You ever like have a disagreement with somebody and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to text them. And then when you text them, you, like, like the other person's not able to read your body language. The text has to be like 10 times longer because you're like, I don't want them to think they're mad at me, right? So I have to clarify what it, women, you're great at this. My wife overthinks every single text message that she writes, right? And I'm just like, just say what you need to say and call it good, right? But, but oftentimes what happens is you're way more bold over text message or over keyboard or whatever. That's why Facebook fights are the most ridiculous type of fights in the entire world. It's like you would never say that to a person if you were face-to-face with them. I think this is part of the idea that happens when you pray communally, and that's why unity comes from it. Because you're sitting there across from someone, and maybe you've got an issue with them, maybe you're upset with them in some way or whatever, and as you see them sitting there petitioning the Lord, praying to the Lord, communing with the Lord, and recognizing, you know what, this is a brother of mine that I have in Christ, a sister of mine that I have in Christ, I probably need to work on some forgiveness in my heart, because the issue that I actually have with that person isn't as great as I probably assume that it is um, at at the time. And so this forms this supernatural unity. If you look at verse 14, some translations have they were gathered on one accord, right, or something similar to the word you see there, united in prayer, right? And it's a very, very interesting word in the original language. It stands behind this word translated united or in one accord. Uh, it's only found in the book of Acts, except for one other place. The book of Acts is, is this idea of unity. There's one place where you find it outside, of, and that's in the book of, of Romans. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing because every single time you see the word applied to the early believers in the book of Acts, it is always a result of prayer and worship. So prayer and worship and the, the, this unity word comes, uh, comes up. It's the type of thing that can only be cultivated through prayer and through worship. And the other verse, Romans 15, 6, listen to this. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you agreement with one another, according to Jesus Christ, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. A united mind and voice. I would love for something like that to be said of FBH. That's an incredible thing that could be said of of any body of believers, that you are united in mind and in voice, glorifying God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it tells unity. It would be a great day when churches all over could cultivate this type of unity based on prayer and of worshiping God. I'm afraid that we as a church don't always do a great job at that. And I'm not just talking about FBH, I'm talking about the capital C Church. That we don't do a great job of seeking unity with one another and coming together in prayer and in worship. But it was actually really cool because uh, a couple months ago we had a guy in our church come to Jeff and I and he was like, hey, I just, I want to pray for our city that they would come to know who Jesus is. 
And so I was like, cool. And he was like, what should I do? I was like, I don't know, go pray for our city, right? And he was like, well, no, I want, like, I want other believers to be able to come and be a part of that. And so he was like, I want to go down to the civic and I want to pray down at the civic. And anybody who wants to come and pray and worship and that's what, they can just come and pray and worship. And, and one of the things that he was worried about was that he was going to be the only guy who showed up. And I was like, well, if you're the only guy who shows up, you know what? You know what you can do? You can pray and you can worship on behalf of our city. And so he's like, okay. And so we even made an announcement last week. We told him, go talk to other pastors in the area and see if they're interested in partnering and that sort of thing. And again, he was just scared that he was going to be the only one uh, to, uh, to show up. And then yesterday he shows up at the Civic and he had 45 other men show up with him. And not just men from our church, but men from churches all around our, our community show up. And they, they found unity in prayer and worship. And then something cool happened. Our, our board moderator, he, he took a photo of it and posted it on a, a Facebook group, uh, a Hanford Facebook group specifically. And that is like the most liked post of any post in that Facebook group. Why? Simply because he was like, you know what? Communal prayer is important. Petitioning for our city is important. And so because of that, I'm going to go simply just pray for our city. I don't have a big agenda. I'm not going to entertain people. I'm not going to come and be like, oh, we've got this massive band and we're going to rock your faces off or anything like that. He's like, I just want to pray. And 45 people, 45 men specifically showed up to do that. Communal prayer, it's incredibly powerful and it results in the unity unity of believers because we recognize that we have one thing in common a risen savior for our sins there's a guy an old theologian named adrian rogers he used to say this he said we've been wired together by organization frozen together by formalism he's talking about the church rusted together by tradition and it's time that we become melted together through prayer and that's exactly what the prelude to victory for us at FBH, for the corporate church or any church that, that, that proclaims the name of Jesus in prayer, gathered together and unifying the body. That's exactly what we have to start with. And it's exactly what the early church started with, was communal prayer. So the first one rooted in prayer. Let's check out the second one. It's in verses 15 and 20. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, so don't think it's just the disciples. We're talking 120 people are there. Um, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke, so, spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. If you're new to church, this is a very common passage that we talk about all the time. Um, verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. They called their field language Akeldama, that is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So what you see in verse 15, they spent some time in prayer, and then Peter stands up and he addresses the elephant in the room at that point. Right? Peter, at this point, he answers a question that everyone was wanting to ask, but no one had, had asked. The question was, what about Judas? If you're new to church, Judas is the disciple 
that completely and totally turned on Jesus, betrayed Jesus, and delivered him into the hands of the people who would eventually crucify him. But the question here is, what about Judas? And that's a hard question. But Peter's question, Peter's answer here is actually grounded in Scripture. And that's the second part of the Acts trifecta. The first one is, man, we're going to be rooted in prayer. The second one is that we're going to be grounded in Scripture in the same way that the early church was grounded in Scripture. You say, like, why then, why were they so confused? Why were the apostles confused at this point? I want you to think for a moment about the mindset of of the disciples at that point in time, right? We don't see it really spelled out explicitly in the text, but it's very much there as you see it unfold, like what the elephant in the room. I want you to think about how perplexed maybe they would have been. Because first of all, they were confused about God's plan. How do we know that? Well, last week we read in Acts verses one or chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples came to Jesus right before he ascended and they were like, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom? Can you, can you restore our kingdom? You know what they were looking for? They were looking for him to restore the kingdom back to the days of David and Solomon when we, they were their own kind of sovereign nation at that point. They wanted Jesus to kick the Romans out so they could have their own nation. They wanted to go back to that golden era of Israel. We're like, you know, we run the show, we're in charge. That's what they meant. That's literally what, what they wanted. They wanted to restore some type of earthly kingdom to Israel going back to the glory days. And so what does Jesus tell them? Jesus tells them at that point, no, I didn't come to do that. Guys, go back to Jerusalem. And I talked about this a little bit last week. You guys are probably really like really impressed with the way I phrased it where they're like, we want a kingdom. And I was like, no, the king has already come. And you guys were all gasping because that was so profound. Um, That was last week. You probably missed it. But um, But he says, go back to Jerusalem and go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they're probably confused at this point. That was one thing that was going on in their minds. But the big thing that was staring at them right in the face was the gap at the table. What about Judas? Have you ever experienced this? You probably have. Um, Where like you have a place where you always sit in our staff meetings, this happens. And we always sit in the same spot. And then when somebody's missing, you're like, this doesn't feel right because somebody's missing. You guys have probably experienced that. Well, I know you've experienced it because you guys all sit in the same seats every single week. And so when someone is not sitting in the spot next to you and they're always in the spot next to you, you're like, man, something's wrong. This doesn't feel right. And so that's what's happening here. They're gathered in the upper room, maybe in the same seats they sat in when Jesus and them shared a meal and Judas's spot is empty. Like, what is it then that we are, we are supposed to do? Remember, we're 21st century Christians, right? And we have 2,000 years of perspective in the entire New Testament to kind of give us insight and remind us that, that Judah, Judas was the biggest fraud in the entire Bible. But did they know that? Like, did the disciples know that at the time? No, they didn't know. You know how I know they didn't know that? Because you don't put the biggest fraud in charge of the money, Right? Judas was in charge of money. He was in charge, like he was the treasurer of the group. They probably had big plans for Judas, as a matter of fact. But instead, he's like, you know what? Instead of taking care of the money and being the little golden child, I'm actually going to betray Jesus. Beyond that, when Jesus tells his disciples, one of you guys are going to betray me, what is the first question that all of them asked? They said, is it going to be me? As far as recorded, none of them like leaned up, like Peter didn't lean over to John and was like, hey, I bet it's Judas right? They all assumed it was good. Not one of them said, I bet it's going to be Judas. And they had high hopes for him. All of a sudden, he turns out the biggest fraud that the world has ever known. So what then did the disciples do with that? 
What do they do with that? At that moment in time, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, needed some clarity. They needed some certainty. And Peter stands up and he gives them the word. And his answer is grounded in Scripture. He is quoting from the book of Psalms as he is talking to the disciples at this. And it would be very easy to assume that verses 15 through 20 are really about Jesus. They're not. I mean, there is something going on here you just can't look away from. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right? And this, this story of this guy who falls headlong, okay, most, most accounts assume that, well, the book of Matthew tells us that, that Judas hung himself. And this is probably true here. Some people think that there is some sort of like distinction, like did he, did he fall and his gut spilled out or did he hang himself? The answer is both. Okay? The answer is, well, he probably hung himself and then as they're talking about here in the book of Acts, he had been there for a long time. And then he fell after his body started decomposing and his intestines spilled out. You're welcome. Welcome to church, okay? Um, probably the most gruesome story in the Bible outside of uh, John the Baptist's severed head being carried out on a serving plate or the she-bears who come and maul the children for making fun of the prophet, which is a great, great story, by the way. But there's, there's clarity and certainty that they get from Scripture, Okay, I want you to see what Peter, Peter did here in verse 16. It says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had been fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. So he goes to scripture, but let me paraphrase it a little bit for you. Let me tell you what I think he's kind of trying to say here. He's saying, hey guys, David predicted this a thousand years ago. David predicted this a thousand years ago. Why should we be surprised? Because clearly God is not surprised. God knew that this was going to happen. God was in control the entire time. Even the, even the events of, of our world that we see unfold every single day, God is not surprised by it. You see, as spelled out in the book of Acts, there was this clarity and certainty they had because they grounded everything in Scripture. The bottom line is that the early church, Scripture, for the early church, Scripture defined reality. It was the lens through which they saw everything else. They didn't say, they didn't say what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we taste, what we smell. That doesn't define reality for us. Ultimately, it's the Word of God, the Scripture, that defines reality. There's clarity there, and there's, certainly, and there's a certainty of what reality is for us. And I'd be, I would encourage you to, to be the same way, but the reality is the world in which we live, that is not what we run to on a consistent basis. We don't go to the Bible for clarity, even though it speaks to the heart of the vast majority of the things that we walk through on a regular basis. And so I don't know what the difficulty is for you this morning. Maybe the difficulty is you lost a job. Maybe the difficulty is you have a, a sick relative or you've lost a loved one or whatever it may be. Fill in the blank. I can't, I can't answer that question for you. But instead of allowing ourselves to go to Scripture and recognize that there are answers that are found in Scripture for us that speak to the heart of the issues that we're walking through, oftentimes what do we do? We do our best to just kind of numb things and put it off to the side. It's what technology has done to us. 
It's this idea that, like, you know what, I've, uh, I'm overwhelmed at work, or I'm anxious at work, I'm stressed out, my family stresses me out, I've got all these issues that I have to work through, and rather than going to Scripture and trying to figure out what it is that we should do about it and recognizing that God is in control of all of it, we take out that little device in our pocket and we just scroll through it and do our best to just kind of numb ourselves to what it is that is happening in our lives. And we allow then culture to tell us what our reality is. We allow social media to tell us what it is that our reality is. We allow the news to tell us what it is the reality is. But in reality, the truth of the matter is, is the Bible then should define our reality. And as we move forward into 2024 in Kings County and beyond, and we're not in any less chaotic or perplexing times than the early church was at this point. The world was unplugged from the truth that God has revealed to us. It was then, it is today, right? In so many cases, it's just darkness and darkness and darkness, and we're in moral freefall. We just kind of feel like our culture and our society is just kind of like circling down the drain. And the reason is, is because we have disengaged and unplugged from God's word. And I'm telling you, they were grounded in Scripture and we would largely do well to follow suit. And so that's the second part of the trifecta for the early church, specifically in the book of Acts. And the last part is found in Acts 1, 21 to 26. It says this, it says, therefore it's necessary. So he says, remember, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to go back and look what it's there for, right? And so when you look in verse 26 and it says, therefore, Peter had just finished quoting scripture. He had just finished talking about what, what they need to do. The book of Psalms says, hey, you need to replace that guy who was a fraud and betrayed Jesus. And so Peter says, then therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So call time out there real quick. So what they're saying is, look, we have to backfill Judas. There's an open seat at the table. Scripture told us that we need to backfill for Judas, and so now we need to find someone reliable. Well, who's someone reliable for the disciples at that point? Probably someone who has been there from the very beginning. I think there's wisdom here. Someone who's been there from the very beginning, saw Jesus' baptism all the way to his death, burial, and his resurrection. They're like, let's pick one of those guys who's traveled with us and done life with us since, um, since then. This is what it says in verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Man, that was, that's a rough sentence for Judas. Then they cast lots. You know what lots are? Lots are a lot like dice, okay? And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. If you're reading this and your biggest concern is that disciples pray over dice and kind of threw dice to figure out who it was to follow Jesus, I think this is more confirmation. They're like, you know what? God's in control of all of this. So God, we're going to pray over these dice. We've nominated these two guys. We're going to roll them and I'm going to see, we're going to figure out who it is that you would have for us to backfill for Judas. But in the midst of all of this, everything, like this confusion and like, where do we go from here? All of these different things, they begin to focus on the purpose to which Jesus had called them. And so if you're looking for the third part of the trifecta, it's purpose. So they started with prayer. 
They then, once they, once they prayed and kind of got their focus, maybe the Holy Spirit like illuminated this idea from Scripture, reminded Peter what was written in Scripture in the book of Psalms regarding what was going to happen. And so then Peter then was like, hey, let me share some word with you. Let, let me talk about what the Bible says about this. And so once they got that clarity, they're like, you know what, it's time for us to, to be on mission. Because we have a purpose here in this life. And so they, they begin to focus on this. And still, there's, there's per, they're perplexed still. They're still trying to figure this out. But one thing they knew for certain was Jesus had told them, you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to be the people who carry out my name in the world. And they said, you know what, we need to fill out our ranks and we need to get busy doing what Jesus told us to do and be prepared to do what Jesus told us to do. Like we, That is our responsibility Right, notice the language that they have there in verse 22. There is a language of necessity. It says, for one of these must become a witness. The language of priority. There's urgency that's happening there. They're fixated on the purpose to which Jesus had called them. You might even say they were gripped by this purpose. And that's, like I said, the third part of the trifecta. Absolutely gripped by the purpose that they said to one another ultimately was this, we must be his witnesses. We've got no other option. We saw our, one of our best friends that we traveled with for three years, we saw him, him whipped and flogged and nailed to a cross. We saw him take his last breath. We saw them take him down. We saw them prepare his body. We saw them bury him and he stayed in there for three days. And then after that, that guy rose from the dead. So everything, everything that he talked to us about, everything that we did over the course of the last three years, man, it is our responsibility to continue to move his name forward and his ministry forward. They were enraptured by purpose. When I was, when I was eight years old, I... I prayed this profession of faith for the first time in my life to follow Jesus. I was raised in a Christian home, right? I, I mean, I was raised, I, I rode my big wheel to First Baptist Merced so many times. Uh, when I got there, we did Sunday school, and for every verse of the Bible I had memorized, I got a Skittle, severely underpaid. But I got, <laughs> but I got a Skittle right? We, we prayed before dinner. We went to church almost every single weekend. We did all the things that, that we are supposed to do. I was as close to Jesus as a mom and dad's faith could get me to Jesus. But the reality of the situation was is that my faith was not my own still. Is that, yeah, I continued to come to church and I enjoyed coming to church. We went to Merced First Baptist a while and we jumped to another church because of dishealth in, in Merced First Baptist. And, and I liked that church a lot because, man, they had a cool youth group and we played a lot of fun games and, and there were pretty girls there. So I was like, this isn't bad. But still, my faith was not my own. And then I was sitting at summer camp and I was 17 years old. And there was a guy by the name of Brad Bell. He's a senior pastor up, up at the well. And Brad was preaching, and this is before he was like mega church pastor. It was when he, you know, had a church of like 100 people or whatever. And, and Brad's got a heart for young people. And so after bringing the gospel presentation, 
He didn't talk to those of us in the room who have been Christians for a long time, those of us who had grown up in the church, the Peter Andersons of the world. And he just said, there is, there is more for you than what you are currently living for. You have a purpose in front of you. And regardless of what you have done, regardless of all of the things that you learned, regardless of the fact that people keep telling you you're the future of the church, he just said, can I just tell you that if you're, if you're in high school, if you're in college, you're not the future of the church, you're a part of the body of Christ now, and you have a very real, not just opportunity, you have a very real responsibility to the body of Christ now, and if you're not living in such a way that is making God look good and Christ well known, then you are not living out your faith. You have a purpose now. And so I took that and I just kind of wrestled with it. And then the following year during spring break, there was a, a pastor and we were down in, in Mexicali doing mission stuff. And there was another pastor who had said, you know what, there, there are people who are sitting out here today whose responsibility is to proclaim the message of Jesus. And some of you are going to be pastors, and some of you are going to be missionaries, but all of you have a responsibility to live on mission. And these pastors consistently called me to something greater. I think it's one of the pastor's responsibilities. You say, hey, I see you. I love you right where you're at. I know you're struggling with sin. Man, get right with Jesus and just know that there is so much more for you to be living for than what it is that you're currently living for. Now get on mission. Go. You have a purpose. Man, I had all the head knowledge that a mom and dad could give their kid. But the Holy Spirit through a pastor gave me purpose. And it was to use the gifts and talents that the Spirit had given me to help further his kingdom in depth and in width. Can you imagine what FBH would look like if, if we embodied these things like the apostles did? Like being committed in prayer. Can I just say this is something that, that we need to continue to improve in? As we look at our ministries, I'm like, man, our, worship, our, our music ministry is great, and our pastors bring the word, and our small groups are killing it, and our kids' ministry is awesome, and all the different things that we do, and our youth ministry, and our seniors, and all the, I don't want to leave anybody out so nobody gets mad at me. But all those things are awesome, but one of the things that we don't, that we could do better is just this idea of corporate prayer. So one of the things that we're going to be doing as we move into 2024 is the last Sunday of every single month, we're just going to pray. And it's not Sunday morning, it'll be Sunday evenings, and we're going to take the opportunity to pray and petition God for the sake of our city, for the sake of our county, for the sake of our oikos, the people who are in our relational world, because they are lost and broken, and they need some light, they need some hope, they need to know the name of Jesus. So we're going to do corporate prayer there. We identified this a few months back. And so we as pastors on Thursdays at 11 o'clock, we go into this little room that's called the chapel that is definitely not a chapel. We go in there and we just petition on behalf of our city. That's an open invite. You want to come? Come. 11 o'clock on Thursdays. And we don't have an agenda. We just say, you know what? Our, our community, our church, our people, we need prayer. And as we pray, we continue to unify and get clarity about what it is that God wants us 
to do. And then we pray, and then we want to be, we want to be big, biblically measured like the disciples were. And so when there's confusion or when there's frustration with the state of the world that we didn't run to the news or run to our social media or numb ourselves on little games that we play on the phone or anything like that, but we would run to the Bible and understand what it has to say, and we would exercise those things through the knowledge that God was in control the entire time. That's why we preach the Bible regardless of how we feel about it. There are some passages that I do not want to preach through because they're not exciting. I don't like coming up here and being a contrarian. I'm a people pleaser. Most pastors are. I want everybody to like me, but nobody to hug me, to be clear. (laughs) But we preach the Bible regardless of how we feel, regardless of how we feel about it. And then lastly, if we at a church had, had a purpose that was beyond just simply like a golden ticket into heaven, right? The gospel isn't just about you not getting burned in hell. The gospel is about God restoring his creation back to him. And I don't want to stop proclaiming it until there is no more breath, until there is bre- no more breath in my lungs, And unless we have that same conviction, unless you have that same conviction, that same desire to make God look good and Christ well known, we are never going to make inroads into Kings County. You're never going to make inroads in your family, in your workplace, with your oikos, you name it, until you recognize that that is our purpose as believers. I said it last week, I'll continue to say it, the church is God's plan A for the world. And some of us often think, well, it's the corporate church, so someone else will pick up my slack. You never think it like that, but it's subconscious. Well, I'm sure other people are talking to people about Jesus. It's your personal responsibility if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior. We have a purpose, and we have a mission, and those things start with prayer. Our focus is aligned and defined by Scripture And we recognize that our purpose on earth as a church and as a believer is to bring God glory by living in such a way that epitomizes what Christ did on the cross for us. That's a church, not only that Kings County needs, that's a church I want to be a part of. That's a trifecta I don't want to stray from. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder of your son and what he did on the cross for us. And Father, this morning, I just pray that we would be a church that has a purpose. We would be a church that is on mission. We would be a church that that would be unified in prayer, that we wouldn't be distracted by other things, things that ultimately don't matter. God, that we would be focused by your word and recognize that we have a mission in this world. And it's bigger than us. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than FBH. It's your kingdom. And there are people in the world who desperately need to know about your kingdom. And we're the ones responsible for sharing it. And so, Father, light a fire underneath us. Make us just enraptured by your purpose. 
And this morning, if there's those in the room who maybe have never made that profession of faith, recognizing that Christ did go for the, to the cross for you, recognizing that you have fallen short of God's glory, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, if that's you this morning, or you're simply far away from God and you're trying to make 2024 the year where, man, you solidify that relationship with him. If that's you in either of those cases, you can simply pray along with me. We'll head still bowed and eyes still closed. Pray those ABCs where we say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I repent of that action. I repent of those sins. I want to turn from those sins. Because B, I believe you sent your son to die for me on a cross, which gives me hope, which gives me a future. And C, that I would choose to follow you every single day. That means living out that trifecta in my life, praying, being defined by your word and living on mission. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray.